Church, I want to speak to you this morning about transcendent faith. Transcendent faith. The word transcendent, transcendent means going beyond ordinary limits, surpassing, exceeding, superior, supreme, supernatural faith. In Hebrews 11, 1 to 3, the, the most, probably the most famous scripture about faith in all the Bible is Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when I look at the meaning of that word substance of things hoped for, it means the foundation or the support for the things hoped for. And some commentaries will say that uh, the substance of things hoped for, when we talk about faith, is it's like a title deed. It's having what you are hoping for before you see it manifest. It's receiving by faith the things that you are praying and believing for and having that knowledge in your heart that what you are believing for is on its way. It's already been released. And we're here 2,000 years after the greatest event in history, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, but more importantly, we are here today because each one of us here has put our faith in something that we did not see. Is that right? How many of you were here 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on the cross, but yet through the eyes of faith we can see and we can perceive what he has done for us and we can receive it. Is that right? That's the step of faith that we took. And then as you go a little bit further into this passage of Scripture, in verse 2 it says, For by it, in other words, for by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. A good witness. Witness is the other word that, uh, that testimony means. And the root word is the word that martyr is drawn from. And the obvious implication is that if these people that went before us obtained a good testimony, it costs something. Is that right? In other words, they persevered through their tests and trials of their faith and they came out of their test with a testimony. There's no testimony without a test. And it's significant that when we read the Old Testament, we read about the way that God was worshipped in the Old Testament we read that the Ark of the Covenant was also called the Ark of the Testimony. Why? Because examples of the miracles of God were stored in the Ark. A golden pot full of manna. You know the story from the Old Testament where they had nothing and they were walking into wilderness and they're like, where are we going to get bread? And it starts dropping literally from heaven. And so a golden pot full of that manna provided by God was there stored in the Ark of the Testimony. There was Aaron's rod that miraculously budded as a sign of his authority. And the tablets of the covenant that God made with Israel were right there. And on top of this Ark of the Testimony, so you've got the manna, you've got the 
You've got Aaron's rod. You've got the covenants, uh, uh, the tablets of the covenant. On top of this ark was the mercy seat over which the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And so you can see that miraculous provision, authority and victory were there, right there with the word of God in the ark of the testimony. And God wants us to understand that his presence rests upon your test and it rests upon your testimony. Whatever you might be going through, whatever challenges you might face, God's presence is there upon your test. And the testimony is one of the most powerful weapons that you have at your disposal. When you are being tested, your past testimony of how God brought you through your trials equips you with faith to go through your current trial. Is that right? Our testimony, our witness is forged in the things that we go through. If your faith is never tested, it will never grow. And so God promises us that our faith will be tested. And the testimony of others can lift you out of doubt and unbelief and restore your place of faith. Who here has ever been encouraged by hearing a testimony of what somebody went through and how God delivered them? Do you realize that the testimony you carry has within it the seed of encouragement for somebody else that needs to be encouraged. And that the more you go through, the more God brings you victory in, the more you can impart to others. We call Abraham the father of faith because of his obedience in stepping out. And listen to this promise, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. I mean, we already know the story of Abraham where God said to him, I want you to go out from the place that you know, and I'm sending you to a place that I will show you. Abraham had no idea where he was going when he stepped out the front door. He just knew that God said, you can't stay here anymore. I'm going to show you where I'm going to take you. And later on in Genesis 22, 17 to 18, this is what he says to him. This is God speaking to Abraham. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants, I want you to understand that's you and I. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham's obedience in stepping out of the place that he was comfortable into, into a place of the unknown, is what sparked um, an incredible journey that has an inheritance that comes down to us. Do you understand that you inherit the blessings of Abraham? Did you know that scripture explicitly tells you that? Galatians 3.14 calls us inheritors of the blessings of Abraham. You shall possess the gates of your enemies. You shall be numbered as the sands on the seashore or the stars in heaven. You are part of the greatest destiny God ever spoke over one man. You inherit what he stepped into and you inherit it because of your faith.
But we will never experience the fullness of the inheritance of the blessings of Abraham if we do not exercise faith. We must, like Abraham, step out in response to what we hear. And we should all be 100% aware that as spirit-filled Christian believers, God is speaking to us and he wants to converse with us every single day. In verse 3 of Hebrews 11, the author really goes transcendent in his revelation of faith. In verse 3, he says, By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. In a world that worships the material realm, and only gives credence to science. How much of a stretch of faith is it for me to understand that God spoke and the ground that we walk on was formed just out of what he spoke? By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God spoke out of the spiritual realm and the natural world was formed. He's still doing creative miracles today. He speaks out of the heavenlies and things manifest in the natural realm. These verses are at the very core of Christianity because they speak to us of something that is outside the material realm. And yet the Bible says that what is outside the material realm has more authority than that which is inside the material realm. And in Hebrews 11 verse 6, we are challenged with this, that without faith... It is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then uh, Paul, the writer of Romans, gives us a little checkpoint about faith. Ever met somebody who's kind of a little bit proud about their faith? A little bit arrogant about their Christian walk? (laughs) It's all right, you're allowed to say yes, I've heard somebody like that. (laughs) Romans 12.3 For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The reason that this should produce humility in us is because even our faith we cannot take credit for. Because God gave us a measure of faith. It is a gift from God 
and it springs to life when we respond to the gospel and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It springs to life, but it wants to be increased. And God's purpose over you is that your faith be increased. From the moment that faith springs to life in us as we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, everything else springs forth from that moment. And so God brings us on a journey of faith just as he has all those who have gone before us. So we read these amazing stories of people in the Bible and how God responded to their faith and their obedience and the incredible things that he did. And when we dig into these stories, when we dig into the word of God, we soon discover that those who we regard as heroes of the faith, like, for instance, Abraham, the father of faith, whose blessings we inherit, they were all just as human and fallible as we are, with the exception of one man, Jesus. And the reason that that's so encouraging and the reason that the Bible does not gloss over the sins of of Abraham or the character of Joseph or the, uh, the, the uh, terrible sin of adultery and murder that David stepped into. The reason that God doesn't uh, gloss over these things is because he wants us to be encouraged in this thing, that your past does not determine your future. And what God can do through you is not limited by what you have done in your past. We are very, very quick to judge those who fall. The truth of what we read about these heroes of the faith is given so that we might understand that we too are candidates for God to do great things through. And in fact, God is desiring to impart authority to us, authority that is birthed in humility. See, authority that doesn't, isn't birthed in humility is authority that does not submit. Authority that does not submit is authority that's out of order. So God wants to entrust authority to us. And in fact, that invitation has been there right throughout all of Jesus' ministry. And in preparing this, I was reminded of the story of Jesus inviting his disciples to go with him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so he invites them. Uh, I'll read this passage from Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 35. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. I want you to get this picture. 
that here are all the disciples and they've been called out on a journey where Jesus says, we're going across to the other side. And they get maybe halfway across and all of a sudden their boat, these experienced fishermen are in great fear because their boat is filling to the point where it's going to sink. And so fear begins to invade. Verse 38, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. He was in the stern asleep on a pillow because all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And when he says you're going to the other side, that's where you're going. The storm was allowed to expose where the disciples were actually at. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What are you going to do about this, God? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then he turns to them and he says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Well, the Son of God, (laughs) as he had been telling them. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? The obvious lesson here is that Jesus said they will arrive at the other side, so they will arrive. Amen? The less obvious one, perhaps, is that Jesus expected them by their faith to quell the storm. Why? Because all authority had been given on earth, heaven and earth to Jesus. And Jesus said, we're going across. So when the storm began to come, the disciples had enough measure of faith, I believe, to rise up and say, our master, who happens to be the son of God, said we're going over there. So wind, stop, waves cease. They weren't there yet. And this example is given to us that we might know that there is more available to us than where we're at. Over the last couple of weeks, God has been taking me on a little bit of a journey of correction, if you like. And uh, I've been putting into practice what I've been preaching who, who was here for the social dilemma message last week? Who here was challenged by it and actually changed your behavior because of it? <laughs> if, you didn't, if you didn't see that message, I challenge you to watch it and not be convicted. I don't have time to go into it now, but I determined as God was dealing with me in my heart about these issues that God needed to be uh, at the absolute center of my life. And so rather than being distracted by the things around me, I've been digging into the Word of God and I have returned to something that I used to love doing and that is to read the biographies of giants of the faith.
And when we embark on a faith journey, we need to understand that there will be storms, just like those disciples were facing I was just speaking about. And there is a storm coming to the Western church that we are currently not very well prepared for, but God wants to prepare us. And it's going to mean that we respond to what he says. And so um, I was, I've been reading about these giants of the faith that have gone before us, one of, one of whom that very deeply impacted me was a man named Leonard Ravenhill, the revivalist of the, uh, the mid-20th century. And uh, in passing reference in the biography of Leonard Ravenhill, reference was made to a man called George Muller. How many of you have heard of George Muller? One, two, three, four. Any others? Okay, allow me to blow you away. Um, by sharing his story, his testimony. Remember I started talking this morning about the testimony of faith. I want to share with you a testimony about this man's life that will challenge you about how big you think God is and how greatly he can act on your behalf. I'm going to challenge you to step into the greater things that God has called you to. The things that are impossible except by faith. For three or four years now, God has been speaking to me every now and then. And he said these words to me, John, you are thinking too small. And when I read this particular biography, I realized how little I had made God. You know, we spout this stuff, we serve a great God, we serve the creator of the universe, and we, these things roll off our tongue. But how great is the reality of the bigness of God in and through us each personally? So I want to tell you a little bit about this man's story. This man, George Mueller, who was uh, born in Prussia, which is modern-day Germany, uh, back in the late eight, uh, 18th century. So the time frame that we're talking about here is from, uh, particularly when he started ministry, for, was from about 1825 through uh, a great chunk of the 19th century. And... Um, in 1834, after George Mueller had been um, a preacher for a few years, living by faith for the offerings he received, uh, he was moved by God to start an orphanage, it's 1834. But I'm glad that George Mueller himself in his autobiography does not gloss over his past because he very explicitly tells us in the beginning of this story that he was an extreme prodigal. Do we have any extreme prodigals in the house? They went way outside. Come on, there's got to be more than two of us. <laughs> there are a number of extreme prodigals in the house that God had to supernaturally intervene in our lives. 
His background was that of an extreme prodigal. This is not a man who you would think would be entrusted with huge responsibility because he was a thief, he was a liar, and he was a gambler. And he uh, destroyed his own future before he even got it. And yet he had an encounter with God where the reality of what Jesus had done for him and what was promised in the word of God about his future so impacted him that his life was turned upside down. And so he was a preacher who had lived by faith to a certain degree to provide for his family, but now he was stepping into a realm of faith beyond anything that he could imagine. And so when God put it on his heart to start an orphanage, he understood that this was to be a work of faith. So he started this ministry without one penny to his name and throughout his ministry, he asked nobody ever for even one penny toward the work that God had called him to do. He simply stated his vision at the start of embarking upon it And he found people who wanted to labor alongside him to see the vision become a reality. That doesn't mean he went looking for wealthy benefactors. He just looked for people who were willing to serve in the orphanage. And they would they I'm sure they would ask him, What's your budget? What's this? What's that? He'd go, Faith. I have nothing, but God is going to do it. Alongside of this, he was also planting a church. He had a vision to send missionaries overseas. He wanted to be a distributor of Bibles and Christian literature and he had a heart to support a hundred preachers of the gospel throughout the United Kingdom. This was a big vision and each of these visions grew from a very tiny seed and each one of these seeds planted in his heart was watered only by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. So every one of these endeavors was prospered. To what degree was it prospered? Well, he built, he ended up with an orphanage with 1,100 orphans in it called Ashley Down in Bristol in England. He supported missionaries all over the world, including Hudson Taylor, who was so responsible for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in China. His church numbered many hundreds of on-fire believers, most of whom were converts. He started a Bible institute and distributed Bibles, tracts and other Christian material all over the world and supported 100 preachers as they preached across the United Kingdom. And in all, it is estimated that in today's dollars, George Mueller's ministries across this period of time raised in today's dollars somewhere in the vicinity of $200 million. And he never asked anybody for anything. Do you get this? $200 million and he never asked anybody for anything. I think I have your attention. And as I was reading this, I felt the Lord speaking to me saying, again, John, you're thinking too small. Sometimes, see, here's, 
autobiography um, and his books were scrutinized and all those sorts of things. His, bio, his autobiography reads like a journal of faith. And he's got all these uh, records throughout the years of times where he had extreme lack and yet God provided. And in the matter of the orphanage, sometimes ministering to those orphans was literally a meal-to-meal proposition. So let's say, for instance, that you all came into this place this morning and if we had a full church this morning, it would be around 100 people, which is pretty much what he started with. 100 people came into this place and had to be fed. And so everybody was fed and uh, everybody was said, okay, now in three hours, you guys are coming back for lunch and, um, and we're going to give you lunch. And yet I had nothing and the people that worked with me had nothing and uh, we had no means of providing you with what I just said you would receive. So quite literally, at times he, he was dealing with this as a meal-to-meal proposition. Now imagine taking the picture I've just given you, given you and imagine 1,100 hungry orphans and they've just been fed their breakfast and the head of the orphanage comes to you and says, hey, George, we got nothing for their lunch. Now how many of us would immediately go into a problem-solving routine? Okay, maybe we can get money from this, maybe we can do this, maybe we can do that, maybe we can do the other. This happened many, many, many times. His autobiography reads like a journal of the trials of faith and his response to these trials was uniform every single time. Every single time he encountered an impossibility like the one I just described to you, he went to prayer. Nothing else. He went to prayer. He didn't go to prayer and ring up a wealthy benefactor and say, hey, we need lunch for the orphanage today. Can you give me 500 pounds? He went to prayer. I want to read you an example from his book. I never read stuff from people's biographies. I love preaching the word of God, but this, this particular testimony so impacted me. I wanted you to see how the foundations of our faith work together for, the, for everything that God has spoken over your destiny. God has spoken things over you that you can scarcely imagine. Some of you have had seeds planted in your heart of where God wants to take you and what God wants to, uh, wants to do through you and, and, and your mindset of the, of the old man, the mindset that the enemy wants to impose upon you is like, no, that's impossible. Why are you dreaming so big? So here's an example from his book. November the 13th, I don't know what year this was, somewhere in the 1840s. It's a Saturday morning. This morning, I took one shilling out of the box in my house. When people would bring donations, he'd put them in this box. This shilling was all there was towards the need of today. Pause, dear reader, for a few moments. Consider that there are more than 100 persons to be provided with everything that they require. Consider that there is no money in hand and consider also that this is the case not once nor twice in the course of the year, but very frequently. 
Is it not precious under such circumstances to have the living God as a father to go to who is ever able and ever willing to help as, as it may be really needed? And to this privilege, everyone has a title. Title deed, remember? To this privilege, everyone has a title who believes in the Lord Jesus being as such a child of God. You can hear the faith in his statement. And so his faith drives him to prayer because he read the promises of God in the word of God about the prayer, about prayer and what it achieves in the spiritual realm. He believed it and so he would go to the Lord. It's a fascinating read. Um, It's an amazing testimony. In the face of impossibility after impossibility, George Mueller always, 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 always had the same response when the need was, was impossible to supply. He would just give himself to prayer. Faith was entwined with prayer. He took God as his word and he took God at his word as we will see The word played just as big a part in this as prayer, and God would answer. The stories are amazing. I was reading testimony after testimony after testimony from this man's autobiography, and God was speaking to me and saying, John, you are thinking too small. You are thinking too small. You are thinking too small. Have you ever had a dream or a vision implanted in your heart and think, I want to do this, Lord. I want to see this happen I believe it's from you, Lord. I believe that you want to do this through me. And then circumstances come and challenges come and the enemy comes and the old man starts to rise up. And instead of walking into the entire realm of possibility before you, you settle for just a little slice. We've got to stop settling for a little slice because there are challenges coming to us such as we have never experienced. But God wants to show himself strong on behalf of those who are, whose hearts are faithful to him. How does God recognize somebody whose heart is faithful to him? He can recognize them by the way in which when impossibility comes, it drives us to our knees to come and seek from the source. Instead of trying to rely on our own resources or wisdom or understanding. So here's an example that really struck me. They're in this breakfast scenario again and they fed the orphans and they need to feed them a meal um, at lunchtime. So they've got about three hours and by this time there's hundreds and hundreds of orphans in this orphanage. And so the leader of the orphanage comes to George and says, listen, we've got no money. We have nothing in the pantries. We emptied everything out to provide the orphans with breakfast this morning. What are we going to do? So George goes to God in prayer. He shuts his office door and he gets on his knees and begins to thank God for the provision that he cannot see in the natural. A couple of miles away, there's a man walking along, going about his daily business. And this man, who was a Christian, had been moved by the Holy Spirit two weeks before to give to George Mueller's ministry the sum of two pounds. Now, two pounds doesn't sound much to us today, but that was a lot of money in those days. 
But this man had been putting it off until it was convenient to drop in and give it to him. And George Mueller did not know that this man had made the decision to make the donation. So he's walking along and he's a couple of miles away from George Mueller's house. He's walking along and God stops him in his tracks and will not let him take one step more until he acknowledges under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, hey, I made a promise to God that I was going to give two pounds to this ministry and I haven't fulfilled the promise that I made and I need to do it now. And he tried to take a step forward because he was making the excuses that we make. I can do it this, I can do it tomorrow, I can do it next week, I can do it next month, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do the other. But he could not move forward. Such was the conviction of the Holy Spirit in response to the guy praying on his knees in an office a couple of miles away. So the guy turns around, retraces his steps, comes to George Mueller's office and says, I have this two pounds for you and it's exactly what they needed. So at exactly the right time for his staff to go out and get everything that they needed so that those orphans had a meal on the table at lunchtime. And this testimony raised a really interesting question in my heart. Who here has had a problem with stress? Come on, I want everybody to be honest this morning. Who here has ever had a problem with stress? How about anxiety? Being anxious for, the, for, uh, for what God's going to do. Who here has felt like they're under pressure? <laughs> All of us, right? Can you imagine the stress, the pressure of founding, growing and maintaining all these ministry enterprises that I described, described before with no money and no subscriber list. Most ministries today, if they have a need, will send an email out to their subscriber base and go, hey, we've got this, uh, we've got this in mind to do and we're hoping that you might donate because it's a worthy cause. I've seen ministries all over Facebook putting up GoFundMe pages. And then I read this man's testimony and I think to myself, we're off track. Our foundations are not right. So you can imagine, you know, he's in charge of what becomes a $200 million enterprise and he has no visible means of support. And he's made this decision before the Lord to never raise any of these shortfalls with anyone except those who get down on their knees beside him and pray with him at any one time. How did he deal with the pressure and stress? This was a question that was kind of burning in my heart. Because I've come close to burnout a couple of times and sometimes that burnout has been associated with the sorts of things in very, very small measure that this man was talking about. And I realised that something's not quite right. If this man has learnt something about how to deal with these things, about how to deal with the impossible, I want to learn. And so here is what George Mueller developed a revelation of. 
And I say developed because I saw from his autobiography that he actually reached the point of burnout a number of times. There are a number of times where you read in his autobiography where people almost forced him to go away and, and, and take a break. But he learned something, and I'm going to read from his biography again. And he says this, The point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, nor how much I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. Now, this is a man who I've just told you about who it was his prayer that moved mountains, right? But there's another facet to how he lived his life that we need to get hold of. He goes on to say, when we pray, we speak to God. Is that right? Now, prayer, in order to be continued for any length of time in any other than a formal manner, in other words, you're just praying by rote, right? Requires, generally speaking, a measure of strength or godly desire and the season, therefore, when this exercise of the soul can be most effectually performed is after the inner man has been nourished by meditation on the word of God. Where we find our Father speaking to us to encourage us, to comfort us, to instruct us, to humble us and to reprove us. So before he goes to God and starts speaking to God, he wants God to speak to him. We may therefore profitably meditate with God's blessings that we are ever so weak spiritually. Nay, the weaker we are, the more we need meditation for the strengthening of our inner man. Everybody understands we're talking about meditating on the word, right? When I talk about transcendent faith, I'm not talking about transcendental meditation. Right, We're all clear on this, that what we're talking about is meditating on the Word of God. And George developed this practice of faith so that every morning without fail, he spent time in the Word, not for the purpose of getting a message, not for a purpose of ministering, but just time in the Word, meditating on the truths of the Word of God. And as he would meditate on the Word of God, God would speak to him, encourage him, reprove him, correct him. Whatever he might need for that particular day, he received from the Word of God. And as he received from the Word of God, from the Word of God even correction builds the inner man, can I tell you. We should never be afraid of being corrected by God because when God corrects us, it's for the purpose of our edification that he might build up our spirit man. When he corrects us, he's correcting something that we have allowed the flesh to embrace. Is that right? This is what equipped him for prayer. This is what established peace in his soul when the storms were raging all around him. Then when he launched into prayer, he was praying from a position of faith because his inner man was strong. 
Thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. And when I open my Bible in the morning, even with just a kernel of faith, I can open the word of God and he will speak to me. For those of us here who have difficulties with family problems or anxiety or depression or stress or financial pressures or anything that's causing your heart to not be at peace, this is for you. I saw something incontrovertible here in this testimony of this man. That God promises us that when we make him the focal point of our daily life, in other words, the first thing we do, he will provide in abundance for our every need over and above and that we can walk in peace through any and every storm of life and dare I say, begin to take authority over the storms that come against us because we have been equipped by the word of God to understand that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And this is important. This is important for us. Just as last week was important about getting the distractions out of the way so that we can focus on the Lord. This is important because there are storms coming. And if you're not equipped to deal with the storm from the perspective of a child of God from sonship, you may well find your boat being swamped and you may find in your heart that you have no peace because you're stressed, you're burning out, you've got all these pressures on you, things have happened, there's all sorts of chaos going on around you and yet the Word of God promises us that we can operate from peace in the greatest storm. There are storms coming. Yesterday in our... Uh, in our prophetic fire ministry meeting, God gave me a prophetic word for Australia. And you know, one of the things, one of the questions I've had for the last almost a year exactly now, I would think, um, we've been doing these prophetic ministry meetings on Zoom for um, a year. And for a large portion of that, God was giving me prophetic words for the United States of America. And... Uh, I'm still encouraged by the emails and the messages that I get from people in the United States who talk about how those prophetic words inspired them to pray and to intercede for their nation. And I made the point yesterday that even though God asks me to prophesy over nations, his prophetic call on my life is not so much the nation as it's itself, that national identity as the identity of the ecclesia within that nation because the nation is not as important as the church within it and what God wants to do in that way. Now, uh, to give you a little bit more context to this, um, all the way through these prophetic ministry meetings, I kept saying to the Lord, uh, when are you going to give me another word for Australia? Because we're about eight years into a prophetic word that I released that said we had 10 years of religious freedom left in our nation. We're about eight years into that word. And though God has spoken segments to me now and then, between then and now, um, nothing to the degree that he has been speaking to me about the United States of America. And I've been asking him about it. And then um, I saw that part of the battle I went through over the last week um, with illness and everything, was that 
uh, when I made the decision on Friday morning, I'm going ahead with the prophetic fire ministry meeting on Saturday morning on Zoom. I went into my studio and I sat down with the word of God and I begin, began to, to ask him what he wanted me to speak about. And he gave me a prophetic word for our nation. And so um, I want to share that prophetic word with you. And the reason I want to share it with you off the back of this description of George Mueller's ministry and his life is that I believe that some of the foundations of faith that the church has moved away from so significantly over the last, particularly the last hundred years, we need to get our foundations right again. And God wants to position us so that we can supernaturally walk through the storms that are coming because there are storms coming. And so let me share this word with you. Um, uh, the, the way that the Lord speaks to me prophetically, sometimes he gives me visions, sometimes uh, he'll speak to me. Other times I'll, I'll sit with my journal and my pen and I'll write. And it's not like uh, that new age imitation automatic writing thing that, that uh, sometimes happens in the new age. This is just me writing what, comes, what the Lord begins to speak to me in my heart. So I felt the Lord say as an introduction, our time of sifting is at hand. And he took me to Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 31. And the background of this scripture is that uh, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry and gung-ho Peter is so... uh, so adamant that, oh, you know, everybody else might turn away from you, Jesus, but I'm never going to do it. I'm tough. I'm strong. I'm good for the distance. And so he argues with Jesus. <laughs> He's got something wrong right there, right? He's arguing with Jesus about what's about to happen. But in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus says to him, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And the thing that immediately uh, dropped into my spirit from this scripture was that when Jesus called Peter Simon, he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. When Jesus called Peter Simon in this encounter, he was calling out Peter's old nature because Peter's old nature had to go. He was speaking to Peter's identity, who he had been called to be. And he was saying to Peter, you are speaking out of your old identity. Jesus knew that it would take some trials for this to happen. And so when the Lord spoke to me about our time of sifting being at a hand, God has a prophetic destiny over our nation. But complacency and prosperity have put the church to a large degree, to sleep. I had a picture of somebody tumbling out of bed. And when they tumbled out of bed, 
because they'd been pushed or because the bed had been tipped over, when they tumbled out of bed, they landed on their knees. And as they awakened, they stayed on their knees and began crying out to God. Our comfort is about to be shaken. Our complacency, our ways of doing things the world's ways, they're all about to be shaken. And we will land on our knees with a fresh zeal for the things of the Lord. Because the things that we have been taking our comfort from will be removed. We will land on our knees and we will begin to seek the Lord. Awakening is coming to the church spearheaded by the remnant bride. Who is the remnant bride? The remnant bride is the bride who is already on her knees. And if we are are called, if you are called to spearhead a move of God in this nation, it's going to be done from the same position that George Mueller adopted as a lifestyle. He would get up in the morning, he would open the word of God, he would allow God to speak to him and through him. Who knows that the word of God smashes rock, burns like fire, consumes the enemies before him. You need to, We need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through us into the inner man and speak truth to us about where we're at and where he wants to take us. I believe the Lord is saying the remnant is being warned. Do not compromise. Do not forge communion with darkness. You know that scripture, what communion has light with darkness? We're called to be light, not embrace darkness. And in finishing, I felt the Lord say, God says, I will have an authentic bride emerge from Australia and send you to the nations to tear down strongholds and bring revival. That's God's destiny for this nation through a remnant that acts as a forerunner to the move of God. We are being called to model the foundations of faith correctly. We are being called back to the foundations of the word of God and prayer because in those two things combined as the central point of our life will come our peace when everybody else around us is panicking, when everybody else is in the middle of a storm. God is going to have a remnant bride who walks in peace and says, this is the way. Come on, follow me. I'm going to take you to the Father. Hallelujah. Can I have the worship team up, please?